Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. Looking at the book of Hosea under the heading, God's Amazing Love. Today we look at Hosea chapter 6. We're going to look at these words this morning under the heading, God's people are confused. And as we go through this passage, we're going to find three truths about confusion. First, we're going to see the problems with confusion. Then we're going to see that God offers correction for our confusion. And finally, we're going to see God's ultimate solution for our confusion. You follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Hosea chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us. But he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of wicked men stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a man, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, committing shameful crimes. I have seen horrible, I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There Ephraim is given to prostitution, and Israel is defiled. Also for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. And it'll continue on in chapter 7. First truth we see, that we're going to look at the problem with confusion. The previous chapter ended with God's refusal to return to Israel unless they first moved toward reconciliation with Israel. So on the surface, verses 1 and 3, it looks like they get it. It looks like they finally understand what God wants them to do. They're finally beginning to, to make that that return back to God. You know, it says, let us return to the Lord. They even begin to recognize that the God who tears them up is the very one who can heal them. Uh, they begin to see that the God who's injured them, he's the one who can bind up their wounds. He's the one that can restore them. He's the one that can bring about happiness and fruitfulness in their life. Even the words that they use even resemble the words that God used in chapter 5, verse 13. And he goes on and says in verse 2, and two or three days will be revived. In two or three days, all we got to do is come back. And within a very short time, God's going to restore us. God's going to love us once again. God is going to, to be bountiful toward us. Everything looks right. It looks like they finally got it. It looks like the prodigal son is finally coming home. He's he's learned his lesson, and he's recognized that all the problems that's that's happened to him has been caused by God, and they recognize, okay, God is going to heal us. 
It looks like they got it right. You see, but that's one of the problems with confusion. Sometimes what things appear right when they are really wrong. That's one of the things that happens with confusion. You see, that's one of the traps of Satan. Satan wants us all to think that we're okay when in reality we're not. Because as long as we can think we're okay, we'll never make the changes that we need to make in our lives. Verse 1, they say, let us return to the Lord. But then you begin to pull it out and you look at what it says. He said, he has torn us, he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. And what you begin to understand in this passage is that there's a a certain form of self-centeredness here. That there's a, a, a shallow uh, form of repentance. What they're looking for is a spiritual band-aid, not spiritual healing, is what they wanted. They wanted somebody to fix their immediate problems, but not deal with the root of their problems. They're coming back to God. They think if we'll just come back to God and we'll begin to do all of our religious ceremonies again, then God will restore us, God will heal us. God would do all these things. But there's no mention of sin. There's no mention of repentance. There's no mention that we may have did this wrong. There's no mention that, that, that we were wrong in offending God and repenting of their sins and turning from the ways. They say, oh, we'll just come back and it will be okay with Him. There's no change in their heart. There's no change in their attitude. It's kind of this old idea is that if God is worshipped, He will tend our wounds well, that's God's nature. That's what God's all about, isn't it? Isn't it God's job to heal? Isn't it God's job to restore? That's His job. That's what He's all about. Now, before we begin to criticize Israel for what they're doing, recognize there's many in the church today that try to manipulate God. They try to manipulate God to get what they want. They think as long as they're going to church and they're singing these songs that God must be okay but they continue to live the same way they've always lived. There's no change. There's no repentance. There's no sorrow. There's no regret. They just continue to go through the motions of doing the same things they've always done. But that's okay. That's okay because on Sunday, they can come back and get their weekly Band-Aid. Listen, that cheapens grace. That cheapens the grace that God has bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. It cheapens the grace that God has bestowed upon us as people. There has to be some change. That's a form of shallow repentance. They think they are right with God, but in reality, they're just confused. They don't really understand what it means to have a relationship with God. Verse 2. He talks about two days who revive us on the third day he restores. Then look at that last one. That we may live in his presence. Notice the emphasis once again is upon them. That we may live in his presence. It's not upon God. It's upon themselves. Just because they're present does not mean that God is watching them. It means that they assume God's purpose is fulfilled in their mere existence. They think just by being present that God must be happy with them. God must be content with them. This is another problem with confusion. A person replaces presence for purpose. A person replaces presence for purpose. 
The people of Israel thought that as long as they were present in the worship services, as long as they were present where God wanted them, then they must be okay. They thought that they fulfilled God's desire just by their presence. Now, God's going to correct this in verse 6. But before we get there, we got to see that the problem brings to light the confusion that they experienced. They thought that all God wanted them just to be there, just to be there. But he had nothing for them to do, no task, no responsibility, no purpose whatsoever, just as long as they were present. Can I tell you that we do the same thing in our own lives? We do it in our individual lives, and we do it in the life of the church as well. We think by our presence, God is happy. As long as we just show up, oh, God is so happy with us. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to minimize our presence. You know, I mean, obviously, if you weren't here, I wouldn't be preaching today. Well, I guess I could. I could preach to myself, you know. So I don't want to minimize your presence, but can I just tell you? There's more to it than that. God, God is, is happy when we're here, but there's, He really wants us to live on purpose. He wants us to live out what He wants us to do. It's not the sum of all we do. It's just show up. There must be more than coming into His presence and sitting and soaking. There must be more. And we do not want to fall into the trap that the Israelites fell into. We don't want to fall in the trap of making mistake of presence for purpose. We don't want to do that. He goes on in verse 3. Finally, we get to the heart of the situation. It seems like they're understanding. We come to the heart of the book of Hosea that they know the Lord. That's the heart of the book of Hosea, that they'd really come to know and understand what it means to have a relationship with God. And it would appear... It would appear that they're doing this. They said, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. It would appear they're doing it right. But God's going to prove that they lack the understanding that they need. Notice how it says, it's like the rain. And it's like the seasons. It's there one moment and it's gone the next. It just doesn't work that way. And what they're beginning to see is that they're beginning to compare God with Baal. You see that? He's saying, we'll come back to God, then he'll give us rain. We'll come back to God and he'll bless our crops. We'll come back to God and he'll take care of our needs. And what they're doing is another thing that confusion causes. It makes God just another God with a little g. He's just one of many other gods. We do the same thing. We do not really want a relationship with God. We just want God to bless us. We just want God to take care of us. You know, we have those individuals say, as long as God will make me healthy, wealthy, and wise, then I'll follow God. I'll follow God. This is the way we are. And today, just give me stuff, Jesus. Just give me contentment, Jesus. Uh, make me happy, Jesus. Give me things, Jesus. And if you'll do that, then, then, then I'll be happy. I'll be okay. And we make him just another God. Make him just another God. Let me ask you a question. 
Is all you want from God fire insurance? Is that all you want? In other words, I'm going to come to God because I know that I'm going to come to Jesus because I know Jesus saves me from the eternal flames of hell. Now, I'm not going to live for him. I'm not going to do anything for him, but I got my fire insurance. Is that all you want? Maybe it's time that we think. Maybe there's more to this than we originally thought. There's a song out on popular Christian radio by Natalie Grant. Uh, Natalie Grant, in that course of the song, she says this, Help me want the healer more than the healing. Help me want the Savior more than the saving. Is that who you are? Do you want God more than the things that He can give you? Do you want Jesus more than the things that He can give you? You say, I want Jesus and more of Jesus every day. Amen. See, what Israel was doing, we want the things of God, but we don't really want God. We want the blessings of God, but we don't really want the presence of God. That's what they were doing in their life. If we do not want an intimate relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, but we want the things that God can give us, we don't really know God. We don't really know Him. So before we get critical of Israel in the Old Testament, we would never behave that way. We would never do that. Can we just say, Israel is us. They are us. We need to take a good look at ourselves. Now, there is good news. There is hope. Aren't you glad there's hope? Uh, there is hope. God knows how to deal with our confusion. So he offers a correction for our confusion. In verse 4, look at what he says. He says, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Any of you parents ever did that with your kids? What am I going to do with you? You know, what am I going to do with you? Here we see the picture of a loving father. Here we see a picture of, that, of God's amazing love coming down to the people. There's no hostility. He's not in, coming to them in anger. It's only frustration. He's frustrated with them. He goes, how long am I going to put up with you? How long are you not going to understand what I'm trying to tell you? And with these words, we begin to see into God's heart and the struggles he had as he looks at his children. As he looks at his children, he sees only disobedience. He sees only rebellion. And he, he's, he's like the disappointed parent who, who cries out. He says, what am I going to do with you? Nothing works. Where am I go How can I deal with this? That's what God is saying. What am I going to do with you, Israel? What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? Do you not understand? This is what he's doing. And like a loving father, he wants them to know that God knows what he needs to do, but he doesn't necessarily want to do it. It's just like this week. Did y'all hear about the 30-year-old son that the parents took him to court because he wouldn't move out of the house? He didn't have a job. He wouldn't get a job. He wouldn't do anything. And he wouldn't do what his parents wanted him to do. Get a job. Move out of the house. And so they took him to court. The court said, yeah, you're evicted. And then he said, I don't want to have anything to do with my parents anymore. 
God's saying, what am I going to do with you? He knows, that he's going to, he, he knows what he must do. Look at verse 4 in the latter part. He says, your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. He said, it's there one moment, it's gone in the next. It appears for a second, and then it's gone. There's no devotion. There's no faithfulness. Their love for God's not genuine. Their commitment to God is not genuine. But the thing is, that's always been their problem. It's been their problem since day one. And so he poses that question, what am I going to do with you? Because he knows their heart. He knows what's going on with them. But he's not angry. He's not angry. God knows the people are confused and he cares for them. So in verse 5, he offers the correction that is needed. You look at verse 5, he says there's three things that he has done to, to help Israel in their confused state. The first thing he's done, God sent prophets to instruct them. Look at verse 5, therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. That word cut uh, comes from a, a word that was used in the quarry, and it meant of, of cutting away stones from another block. And so when you, when you talk about cutting, he's talking about hard, sharp blows with a chisel and a hammer. He says, I'm cutting these things away. So when God dealt with Israel, it was, a, he, it was like a stone that requires hard blows. It was a, using sharp instruments. And God says, I've sent my prophets. I've sent my prophets to you. And they, and they cut you to pieces. God says, I, I, I love you so much that, my word, that, that these people are hard. They're hard. Now, we like to, these modern, these prophets are gone. We don't have their prophets are old, or do we? Or do we? You see, the prophets of old are the preachers today. The preachers are the ones that stand in the pulpit and preach the Word of God. They preach it, and God uses these prophet preachers to convict, to, to bring people out of their confusion and to challenge them to be all that they can be in Christ Jesus and not settle for something less than a full, intimate relationship with God and serving Him and bringing Him glory. Amen. And any prophet, any preacher that stands in the pulpit and is content to leave the people where they are, he's not worthy of the office that God has given him. He should always challenge him to move forward. We were talking this week. And look, I appreciate, I'm not real comfortable with this, okay? I appreciate that some of you actually like my preaching, okay? You keep coming back, so you must like it, okay? Or either that you like Kip or you like Marilyn, I don't know. I hope it's me because I kind of dominate a little bit more than the others. Uh, and you say, oh, I just love our, our, our preacher. He just preaches the Word of God. He preaches the Word of God. He doesn't sugarcoat it. That's okay. I said, but I said, maybe I need to sugarcoat it because obviously it ain't getting through. <laughs> it ain't getting through. And so I said, what is it you love about my preaching? You know, that's, that, that, that's the way preachers, we, we think that way all the time. What is it they like? That we challenge them, we cut them with sharp blows. God uses these prophet preachers Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 talks about this. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. 
It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. You hear that? It cuts. And it cuts hard. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And God sent these prophets and they preached and they taught God's Word. It cut the people, which leads naturally into the second part. Look at that second phrase. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Second, His words have convicted them. So he sent prophets to instruct them. He said, my words have convicted them. He said, I killed them with his words. Can you imagine that? God said, I killed you with my words. My words put you in the, in the, in the casket. It convicted you. When the prophets spoke, it was as, as if God was speaking to them through them, through his word. But they didn't like it. They didn't like God's word. They didn't like what the prophet said. You know why? Because if they listened to the prophets and they listened to God's word, they'd have to change. And they didn't want to change. They liked where they were living. They liked their sin. They liked their rebellion. They liked their idolatry. They liked their adultery more than they loved the lover of their souls. They didn't want to change. It's the same thing in the New Testament. Jesus was talking in the New Testament about, about people needing an intimate relationship with them. And he was talking about having a fellowship with him and having intimacy with him. And then he makes this, this weird statement. He says, you know, if you're going to come to me, man, you've got to eat my flesh. You've got to drink my blood. Oh, he, what is he talking about here? Oh, Jesus, that, those words are hard. What Jesus was saying, he said, if you're going to come to me, then you're going to have to depend upon my death to quench your spiritual hunger. You're going to have to depend upon me to give you life. But in order to come to Jesus, what did they have to leave? They had to leave behind their religion. They had to leave behind their theological teachings, and they had to accept Jesus. They didn't want to do that because they would rather live in ritual. They would rather live in their religion with rules and rituals and rites and regulations instead of live in a relationship with the Holy God. Israel's doing the same thing. We do the same thing in this life that we live. We do not like what God says. But listen, it does not change the fact that it's God's Word. Amen. We may not like the truth, but it's still truth. We do that. Finally, he says he has brought discipline upon them. Look at that last part of verse Five, my judgments flashed like lightning upon you. God has brought discipline on them to bring them out of their confusion. Time after time, God brought judgments and he brought discipline down upon the people. Sometimes it was natural disasters. Sometimes it was invading armies. But he did this to teach them about himself and about who he was. He's trying to shed light or bring revelation to him to mankind. God loved the people of Israel so much that He took extreme measures to help them out of their confusion. It's the same way today. God still cares for us in the midst of our confusion. The Bible says that when Jesus came into this world, that He looked upon the people around Him. He says they are, they are like sheep without a shepherd. He says they're confused. 
They don't know which way to go. They don't know what to do. And God still looks down upon the world today. He looks down upon His church. He looks down upon us as individuals. And He sees the same thing. And He responds the same way. God still chooses to reveal His will. And He still chooses to reveal His way of life to people. What does He do? He sends preachers to use hard words. He uses His Word to convict. And sometimes, my friend, He brings discipline into your life to bring you back. You know that's true as a parent, don't you? I know we don't do it today, but I grew up in a, in a day and age when I got the, uh, the belt of knowledge placed upon the seat of learning. Well, he must not love me because he spanked me. I said, no, he spanked me because he loved me. And he loved me enough to discipline me. Now, I don't know why I got one every morning when I got out of bed. I think it's because he knew I was going to do something wrong. Maybe that's what God needs to do to us. Just every morning, he needs to smack us a couple times. All right, that's what you're going to do. Now, don't go out and do it. No, I'm, I'm teasing. Why is it? Why is it that we who are sinful know what to do for our children and God who is holy doesn't know what to do? He disciplines us. Now that discipline may look different. Can I just tell you that sometimes He disciplines us as individuals? Did you believe that? Can I also tell you that God sometimes disciplines us as a church? Oh, no, that's not scriptural. He did it to Israel. Why can't he do it to us? God is God. Who are we to tell him what he can and cannot do? I mean, he punished all of Israel when they came into the promised land. I'm meddling now. It's not even in my manuscript, so I have to change it. Whenever the children of Israel crossed in the Red Sea, they destroyed the city of Jericho. Jericho destroyed it. No, it didn't lose one person. And God said, okay, now everything that is in Jericho belongs to me. Everything. You give it to me. Well, one guy, one guy, his name was Achan. He saw something and wanted it. He wanted it. And so he took it and he hid it in his tent. And so they went, they went to battle against, against the cities of Bethel and Ai. Went, went, to, went to battle. And it was just like a skirmish. And they sent thousands of troops in there. And they got in there, and these hundred men from these two cities ran thousands of Israelites out, and they lost 30, I think it's 36 men. Why? Because of the sin of one person, a whole nation was punished. Let me tell you folks something. If you ain't right with Jesus, and you're not right with God, you're hurting this church. I don't make this stuff up, folks. I'm just kind of reporting the news, okay? I'm fair and balanced. But somehow or other, we get this impression that oh, God wouldn't do that today. He wouldn't do that today. God is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. Finally, we look at this, God's ultimate solution for our confusion. He's offered all these corrections Look at verse 6, for I desire mercy, 
not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Man, he's going back to square one. He's taking them all the way back. He's starting over. First, he says, I desire mercy. I desire sacrifice. We see that word mercy in this verse. It means devoted love. I require devoted love. You see, to the Israelites, they thought the sacrifices were important. They thought as long as they were making the right sacrifices, that was okay. But God said the sacrifices mean nothing if your heart's not right with me. That's what he's telling them in this situation. He says, nothing can take the place of that. It meant nothing. Because of their traditions, they do the things they do because it's what they've been doing all those years, all those years. But it did not mean their hearts were out of God. It's a ritual passed down. And the response to the actions and the words of God must be personal. There must be a personal response. It must be self-giving. They must be a self-commitment. Nothing else would do. You cannot give to God if you do not love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might. Everything you do is just ritual and religion and rules. Verse 6, he goes on. He says, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. One of the main themes, he comes back to it. He goes all the way back to the beginning with Cain and Abel. Now, we don't understand it by looking at Genesis, but the writer of Hebrews brings out the truth that we need to understand. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, he says this, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. It was not the sacrifice of Abel that was better, but it was his heart that was better. And God wants the people of Israel to understand this this truth. He wants them to grasp this understanding. Fellowship with Israel. He wanted fellowship with Israel through loyalty. He wanted fellowship with Israel through love, through faith, and through obedience, not through ritualistic sacrifices. God did not come. He never came and intended to create a religion of ritual, but He intended to create people who make Him absolute Lord of their life. And everything they do and everything they say. God offers the same solution for our confusion today. It's no coincidence that this idea in verse 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is one of Jesus' favorite expressions. In Matthew chapter 2, he uses it twice. And he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. God desires devoted love, not ritual. Devoted love. There's a song that came out several years ago. I don't remember who sang it. I just remember this line. He said that God's final word was Jesus. He needed no other one. God's final word to us is Jesus. He doesn't need to speak anything else. Just listen to Jesus. Listen to what he has to say. It is so true for us today. God's ultimate solution to all of our problems. God's ultimate solution to all of our confusion. God's ultimate solution to all of our religion is Jesus. Is Jesus. He's the one that brings it all into play. He's the one that does it. 
He teaches us what we need to know. He provides the direction in which we need to go. Jesus gives us purpose in life. If we come to Him, if we come to Him and say, Jesus, I come to you today because I'm tired of living in ritual. I'm tired of living in rules and regulations. And I'm just tired of going through the motions. Jesus, I want you to give me life to the fullest. Jesus came to give abundant life. Life that can be lived today, not in eternity. This should be just the beginning of what you're going to do in heaven forever. What do you think you'll do when you get there in heaven? What do you think you're going to do? You think you're just going to sit there and worship? I think you will. But guess what? There's going to be tasks. There's going to be joint jobs for you to do. It's no coincidence that the Bible opens with the garden and it ends with the garden. And go back and look at that. And it says, in that garden, Revelation, it says, in that garden, we'll be able to eat of all the trees that are available to us and, guess what, and the tree of life. Who's going to take care of that garden? Adam took care of the first garden. What makes us think we won't take care of the next one? We don't know for sure. So you're at a training ground here to learn how to serve God and learn how to be obedient here, just getting you ready for what you're going to do up there for eternity. It's my hope and my prayer that we will get out of our confusion and we will learn what it truly means to be followers of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not because of our works, but because of His grace. But because of His grace, there will be works. There will be. There will be. Because I, I love that verse in Ephesians. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. To do what? To do good works. You, really, you are God's workmanship. Have you ever thought about that? Actually, that phrase is, you know, I think it's God, you are God's poem. I think, I think it's where we get our word poem today, or masterpiece. So stop and think about it. When God was composing a poem, he composed you. You are God's poem, created in Christ Jesus, to do wonderful work, to make beautiful music, to make beautiful noise, to make beautiful service for him, to glorify him. You are God's masterpiece. Masterpiece. Let's pray. Ricky's going to come and lead us a closing prayer. I'm closing him. Give you an opportunity to respond. I'll be here at the front. Josh will be here at the front. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you just need to seek some counsel. Marcy's going to make her way down. We'll be here for you. We're just here to expedite any conversation you might need. Would you stand with me as I lead us in a time of prayer? Father, we come before you this morning. Thank you for this opportunity you've given to us to gather together, to seek your face, and Father, hopefully to turn from our wicked ways. Father, we don't want to be confused. We want to know exactly what it is you have for us to do as individuals, as a church, as a people. Father, we live in a world that is living in confusion and chaos, 
God, you've given them an answer. And Father, perhaps that answer lies within us as we try to point people to Jesus. Father, help us to understand this. Bring us out of our confusion, Father, and bring us into a state of calmness with you. Bring us back into that loving relationship with you that we so desperately need. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.